Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Right. Uh, first of all, welcome to our show. We had a whole different show planned. Governor Malloy is going to be sitting with Michelle Obama, Michelle Obama at the State of the Union address, and 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 uh, you know Sean Penn is interviewing El Chapo, and there were the Golden Globes. We had all these things we were going to talk about, and then David Bowie died, and it seemed like there was sort of nothing else we really could talk about. And and I say that as somebody who probably is the least quali- definitely is the least qualified person who's going to be on this show today to talk about David Bowie. My only qualification that I can really claim is that um, I saw two Saturdays ago, I think it was January second, uh, the musical Lazarus, which is a his last big project in a way. It's connected to the album that he released with that, but it's an off-Broadway musical, kind of an extension of the story of the man who fell to earth. It combines brand new music that David Bowie had written with um, some of his older and more familiar music. And certainly sitting there in that theater watching that and watching Michael C. Hall and other actors sing this music, I was reminded at the time of how what an incredible rich trove, what the catalog is kind of amazing uh, and deep and rich. And the new stuff was pretty fascinating, too. And as everybody noticed, it was very jazz inflected. Um, but then the other thing, the other quick thing that I'll point out before we dive into the show is that um, one thing that was not in the air at all on January 2nd was the notion that David Bowie was sick or dying or anything like that, that we've been dealing with personae uh, of David Bowie his entire career. And he's managed uh, uh, to misdirect us about all kinds of things about himself or change the whole presentation of himself. And you rarely know that you're dealing with David Bowie. And I, I, he may have sort of pulled this off one last time it's in the sense of, you know, how, how few people really saw this coming. So um, with that, uh, other people more qualified will now <laughs> join this conversation. Uh, John Dankosky really should be hosting this show, knows so much more about <laughs> David Bowie than I do, but he had a different kind of show that he had to do this morning. Uh, and he's in studio with me. So is Sean Lang. She's director of public policy with AIDS Connecticut. So much of what David Bowie did, particularly in certain phases of his career, was kind of opened up the world to different ideas about gender, sexuality, uh, certainly of the LGBT movement uh, is um, in his debt in a way of just – I don't know, maybe it's just loosening up our ideas a, a little bit about things that were pretty rigidly considered before. And Eric Danton is with us by phone. He writes about music and pop culture for the Wall Street Journal, Paste Magazine. He's got his blog at listendammit.com. Uh, um, Eric, I'm going to start with you and just sort of say that I know one way that you see David Bowie is as a musical inflection point, kind of changing the curve of the line. He's right there where the, where the curve changes, and he's often the person affecting that change. Maybe you can say more about that. 
Yeah, sometimes he's out in front of that line. He is the one who is doing the bending, and he's done it the whole time. You know, he started as almost a folk singer, an acoustic guitar-playing singer in the 60s in England, and went into the whole weird uh, space alien thing, and then there was the sort of Thin White Duke era. He fared better than most of his 70s contemporaries did in the 80s. Let's Dance was a gigantic smash. Uh, and he never really quit. Uh, he was putting out good albums up until now. Um, you know, I remember I was a rock critic at The Current when Heathen came out in 2002, and I was very pleasantly surprised at how good it was for someone who had been doing it as long as he had, who had had the success that he had. It was a very rare thing to see that happen. And his videos, more recently, the videos he put out for The Next Day, which was his 2013 album, still showed this amazing creative sensibility that is so rare in anyone really but especially in an artist who has had to adapt to so many different formats so many different cultural paradigms it's amazing what Bowie has done and John Dinkowski I mean artists who change a lot they risk losing their fan base right I mean Dylan goes electric pick something <laughs> you know people get mad and what Bowie did was change all the time and there's a sense and I think it's true for you. You've just been, like so many fans, along for that whole ride. I've been along for a ride for so long. I mean, truly the ar iconic musician of my lifetime. I, I have two people on my Mount Rushmore. It's David Bowie and Brian Eno. And they worked together many, many times, including a, an, a fabulous trio of records in, made in Berlin in, in the late 1970s. These two have changed time and time again, and as Derek was talking about, they were sometimes pulling people along, sometimes popularizing things that weren't popular. I, I can talk more about how much I feel that he was key to translating Lou Reed to a larger population, the great Velvet Underground uh, songwriter who didn't have a fan base in the 1960s and then later did uh, after David Bowie produced his, his album Transformer, and how he really took on the persona of Andy Warhol that he had perfected and turned it into something that was, again, more of a, an out-front pop icon than even Warhol had been. It's just, it's amazing how much he changed and how much w so many of us came along for the ride. And yeah, Eric Danton, it's a great point that John makes. We'll be coming back to this a few times as we go along today, that Bowie is so many things, but he's um, an interpreter of other people's works. Hence, he's kind of the St. Paul who in introduces Cranky Lou Reed to uh, <laughs> a larger world. Uh, and and a writer of songs. Well, I know that you are a big fan of, uh, or at least feel as though all the young dudes, for example, from Mata Hoople is, uh, you know, when, uh, another way in which David Bowie is having his work interpreted. And that happens again and again in really interesting ways. Well, it does. You know, not only is there Lou Reed's Transformer, but he was involved with Iggy Pop's The Idiot. He helped introduce Stevie Ray Vaughan to a, a wide audience with Let's Dance. Um, you know, for, for people of my age, my generation, uh, our first exposure to him was probably in the movie Labyrinth, of all things, mm -hmm. where... Not only was he doing this musical thing, but there he was on screen, too, as pretty convincing as the Goblin King in that movie. So he had this, these days we'd say cross-platform knack. He was platform agnostic. Yeah, and he seemed to be able to morph in so many different ways. We're about to t talk to David uh, Itzkoff, who's uh, one of the got one of the last David Bowie interviews. That doesn't mean it happened last week either. David Bowie did not give many interviews. But before we do that, um, Eric, I'd just like to stay with you for a second. One of the other, he he could blend so many different styles. Um, I want to play just a little bit of uh, of all the young dudes uh, for just a second here. Billy Rock, Tom. 
You know, Eric, that is what it is, but I've heard a couple of different versions of it recently, including the one that's in Lazarus, the off-Broadway uh, musical at the New York Theater Workshop, where it sounds like a, a soul song. And even listen to the part that's in our, our ears right now. I mean, that could be a Sam and Dave tune, too. This is a guy who's experimenting. He's like, in some ways, the whitest guy in the world. Uh, and he's also this guy who's really able to fuse a couple of sensibilities very persuasively, including a black sensibility. Absolutely. For the Thin White Duke, the guy had a ton of soul. I mean, uh, uh, Young Americans is an incredibly soulful song. And again, you know, I keep coming back to Let's Dance, uh, but there's some real kind of funk and soul happening on there, too, that you would not expect from someone who also made a career in the early 70s of Life on Mars, you know? It's, right. Yeah, actually, uh, Rand Rand Richards Cooper, who you hear later today, he said to me off the air, that's when he knew the 80s had started, was when when Let's Dance came out. And (laughs) and there's David Bowie kind of conventionalizing himself. He actually kind of looks much more like the rest of us as opposed to looking really different from most people in the previous decade. So it's like, uh, yeah, there's so many uh, directions that he took us in. Um, I should say that as we go along, you're going to hear from a lot of people. Some of them will be people you know from listening to the show in the past. Some of them will be people that you'll meet. To Eric's point, you're going to from Matt Damsker, who was actually in the studio uh, when Young Americans was being recorded in Philadelphia. Uh, but right now, we're going to go to David Itzkoff. Uh, he is a culture writer for the New York Times, um, and he is somebody who had the opportunity to interview David Bowie. As, was 2005, was it not, David Itzkoff? Yeah, that's correct. I, I appreciate your qualification earlier because, uh, as you say, on the one hand, it was one of the last interviews that, that Bowie gave, and, and at the same time, uh, I mean, we know that he uh, continued to live and be productive for another uh, decade after he and I spoke, but he just continued to sort of uh, retreat from the media and, and also did not play, you know, really any uh, live shows after, uh, after that, gave no concerts. Uh, and, you know, at that point he was not, uh, you know, ill as far as anybody knows that he just sort of uh, became a little bit more uh, hermetic. Right. And so one of the questions that I have, too, is because we deal so much when we're dealing with Bowie with personae, um, uh. Uh, did you feel like you were talking to David Bowie? I mean, did you feel like he was basically just being very authentic as you spoke to him? You know, it was one of the most sort of serendipitous uh, conversations that I think I've ever been a, a part of. I mean, I was uh, at that time uh, an editor for a music magazine called Spin, but I was approached by uh, an editor at Condé Nast because they do these annual uh, fashion rocks uh, concert events where they get very prominent artists and they kind of pair them up in interesting ways or just put on cool performances. And I think they sort of make it obligatory that the performers have to give, uh, you know, short interviews interviews uh, for these kind of supplemental uh, publications that they send out with all their other magazines. Uh, and so David Bowie was the uh, the headliner uh, that year, and so I got to speak to him for, I want to say maybe a half hour or an hour over the phone. And I think he was, I mean, he was so uh, easygoing. I mean, it was almost, 
you know, I mean, of course, uh, you, you try as a journalist not to be starstruck in any way. You try to just talk to people like they are regular uh, people. And, and he did not carry himself in any way like this kind of, uh, you, you know, musical genius and innovator. He seemed way more interested in what I, as a then, you know, 28 or 29-year-old uh, rock music magazine editor was listening to what bands I was checking out and uh, just wanted to kind of trade uh, suggestions with me. <laughs> right. There's Right at the beginning of that interview, you ask him some question about himself and his relationship to fashion, and he said, oh, I'm not good at that. Let's talk about new bands. It's, yeah, it's like exactly. The thing he's the least interested in, I mean, and probably a complicated conversation for him to have, any conversation about himself. You know, there's so much projection onto him and so much projection coming out from him. Uh, about who he might be at any given moment. I think that's right, and I think that certainly, uh, I mean, even 10 years ago, I mean, the, the kind of status that he had achieved, you know, when you find yourself in conversation with somebody who uh, doesn't deal with you on a daily basis, there are probably so many questions that you've just been asked so routinely, and of course, you try to give a unique or, or a unique-sounding answer or make it sound like you're interested or engaged in what people are asking you, but when you're David Bowie, there's really just a, a, a finite run of things you've probably been asked about, and so uh, I think in a very sort of, you know, gentle and, and uh, you know, productive way, he was trying to steer the conversation in a way that it would actually be a unique uh, experience, and I, I truly did come out feeling like I had basically just talked to, like, a really cool uncle who was still very hip and into <laughs> contemporary rock music and wanted to know what I was listening to and wanted to turn me on to a few things that uh, I hadn't heard yet. The coolest uncle in the entire world. <laughs> oh, my good God. Yeah, yeah that's, that's uh, yeah, I think I maybe understated it. <laughs> but I don't think he actually, that's the one thing he didn't really ever seem like he was, was anybody's uncle. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, well, David Iscott, thank you so much for sharing that, that and I apologize for racing through uh, uh, but we have so much ground that we have to cover here today. There's so many things to talk about. Uh, and we, before we go to Sean Lang, well, let's hear a little bit of, I think, the song that sets up this conversation a little bit anyway. Still don't know what I was waiting for And my time was running wild I'm in dead-end streets And every time I thought I got it made It seemed the taste was not so sweet so I turned myself to face me But I've never caught a glimpse How the others must see the faker I'm much too fast to take that test Ch-ch-ch-changes Turn and face the strangers So, Sean Lang androgyny as a complicated thing and maybe um actually maybe before you speak let me just go to eric Danton for a second you know um in some ways you could sort of say that anybody who is an inflection point in music and culture tends to bring with him if he's male some kind of androgyny you know that even sinatra was more effeminate than any big band singer who came before him at least in his level of, of emotiveness and that elvis presley wore eye makeup when he was in high school and we could just sort of keep going right um you know certainly on to michael Jackson and elsewhere. But what we're talking about here is really different, right? It's almost a confrontational style of androgyny. Well, and Bowie was really good at that, too. Um, in part, I think he was fluid enough 
in a way with with his sexuality with his his persona or persona is as you put it with Itzkoff that it was no big deal to him to sing from any number of perspectives I mean even in the song Rebel Rebel you know your mom's not sure if you're a boy or a girl is one of the lyrics so in the 70s that was pretty transgressive hmm. even in the in the age of glam rock and the New York Dolls and that kind of thing it was he was reaching a larger mainstream audience and promulgating these ideas that uh, even now are, are continuing to take shape. So, uh, Sean Lang, for uh, a generation, maybe a couple of generations of LGBTQ people out there living in the heartlands of America, this must have been really the first icon who said, oh, wait a minute, you're not alone. Oh, for sure. You know, as a little blue-collar, non-gender conformative kid uh, growing up in Norfolk, Mass., and... You know, for someone like David Bowie to come out and be his authentic androgynous self was really kind of a radical notion um, from where I grew up, um, but also um, internally kind of transformative for me. And so and it must work both ways, too. In other words, here are um, uh, gay and lesbian teenagers and, and young adults hearing music and seeing a, a person who seems very affirming of difference and, and otherness. Um, but he's also talking to a bunch of straight people saying, hey, get over it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, and again, going back to uh, David Bowie being his authentic self and all the different ways he expressed that, um, but people just embraced him because his music was transformative as well. I mean, every time you played a couple um, licks in the studio, we're all bobbing our heads, uh, ready to sing out loud and having to restrain ourselves. Well, to, I, to Colin's point, Sean, this was so interesting. In my high school yearbook, okay, so this is the the whitest, most suburban, most heteronormative high school in, in America at the time in suburban Pittsburgh. Um, it was quoted, the, the song changes. Uh, the high school uh, yearbook director pulled out, you know, these children that you spit on as they try to change their world. And looking back, it seems kind of goofy because we were all kids who seemingly had everything in the world and we didn't have anybody questioning uh, who we were or questioning ourselves too much. And as I think back on that, I think, my goodness, yes, it really, his music, it allowed us to think about things no matter which side of this divide we were on. And then as we grow older, we realize there's no divide at all. Like David, <laughs> he got it along long time before us. Oh, for sure. I mean, the song Changes uh, came out the year I started high school. So, yeah. you know, what a kickoff that yeah. was, really. Yeah. yeah. And and so, Eric, is it also reasonable to say then that he launched a movement of other people? Or, uh, I mean, obviously there was a lot of stuff that went along with glam rock. Um, was he the spear point of that or just one manifestation of it? I think he was a, just a manifestation of it, but he was an early manifestation of it. Mm. He was doing this he wasn't the first to do it. I, and I mean, he was coming out of psychedelic London at the end of the 60s. And he certainly was spending time in New York, uh, in the downtown New York scene. Lou Reed, especially, uh, were, were pretty fluid in that sense as well. Bowie, I think, grabbed onto that and internalized it in his own way and projected it back at his audiences. And doing that, I think, he reached so much wider an audience than Lou Reed or the Velvet Underground were at the time or some of the other people who were experimenting with that kind of thing before Bowie took it upon himself. All right, so we're going to go to a little piece of uh, – I've been recording stuff all day. I have to, first of all, say like several times today that Betsy Kaplan and Kion Wolf 
I mean, <laughs> they have been worked very hard today, and they've been very creative in responding uh, to the challenges of this show. So we've been recording conversations all day long. You're about to hear one between uh, David Edelstein and Jim Chapdelaine. Another thing we wanted to do today is have two people very involved in the arts maybe have a conversation about a specific David Bowie song. And in fact, we have a guitarist and producer, uh, Jim Chapdelaine, here in the studio with me. Joining us by phone is America's Greatest Living film critic, David Edelstein, from uh, Fresh Air and CBS Sunday Morning and New York Magazine. Um, and so, and the song that they're going to discuss is Ashes to Ashes. Um, Jim, I'm going to start with you and just have you talk a little bit about this musically. Or, or, or why, as a musician, you gravitated towards this song? Uh, you know, I think I first became aware of it um, on MTV, when MTV was a music station. And and the visual, it was visually compelling, but it was also really musically so solid and different and um, unearthly. I, I don't even know how to describe it. It was other. It was very otherness. And that was a unique uh, that Bowie really had the ability to do that, to capture otherness. Yes, well, so much of the music is kind of about otherness in so many different ways. And so, uh, David, obviously, the song is also very apropos, very apt for t the day and the moment today, but I think you think it says other things about the culture. Well, I mean, let's not forget that Bowie's uh, uh, space oddity persona, uh, his major Tom persona was... Liberating. It was a way of um, differentiating himself from from everyone else and making uh, uh, androgyny and weirdness and uh, oddity, um, you know, something that was beautiful. And and the Ziggy Spider persona was very much a, a part of this idea. And it there were a lot of people who. Um, who found Bowie, who found hope and inspiration in Bowie and were kind of crushed when he turned on uh, Ziggy, on, on Ziggy, on his own creation and turned in a, in a way on glam and in some ways on the counterculture. And Ashes to Ashes seems to me a kind of epitaph, a very sad epitaph for the counterculture, for what happens when you maybe follow your oddness too far. And you you drift out. I mean, obviously, there's a reference to to being a junkie and to leaving Earth altogether. But to me, it's it's an almost unbearably sad song about something that was once so great uh, becoming so sort of melancholy and detached from the world. And uh, I, I mean, I listen to it over and over and over again, sort of you know, at once calm me and and uh, make me think about the direction that I'm heading in in the world. Um, let's actually hear a little bit of Ashes to Ashes. We'll continue our conversation uh, uh, towards the end of the song here. Here's Ashes to Ashes. Ain't got no money and I ain't got no 
So Jim Chaplin is a musician listening to it now. Anything in particular you hear? Um, well, I, first of all, who, who else could get away with just pictures of Jap girls in synthesis and I ain't got no money and I ain't got no hair? Mm-hmm. Um, I would contrast this with how I found out about this this morning was my daughter t- telling me that David Bowie had died. I said, well, how did you find out? And she said, from Harry Styles of One Direction, mm-hmm. who also has a Changes song. And, and if we go back to, you contrast this song with Changes, which is a really optimistic, youthful song when he was sort of in his early appropriation days. Um, this is such a radical departure. Everything about this musically holds up. I mean, the, the, it's a cool harmonic structure. The melody is unforgettable. And then when you marry it to the image, to me, it was... So I played this song for her, and she said, Oh, no, Dad, Dad that's I know that song. It's too sad. I can't even watch a bar of it. I can't watch any of it. Mm. So it, it's speaking to what David said, it, it truly is affects people very differently. You know, that, that notion, David, of... Um of sort of death and rebirth. I mean, it just sort of goes on all the way through his career. I mean, the, the most recent CD, the one that just came out within the last week or two, and which is keyed a little bit to Lazarus, the off-Broadway uh, musical that uh, is up right now featuring his music, is, you know, I mean, people are talking about it as uh, essentially a David Bowie jazz album. So it seemed as though that cycle uh, of death and rebirth just went on again and again. It did, and, this, and Ashes to Ashes was uh, basically launched him uh, to Berlin. To, I mean, he took a lot of time off, and then he went to Berlin, and he created, uh, you know, with Brian Eno and, and others, what we know today as, as post-punk, which led, I mean, you can listen to music from the early 80s, and, and it's got Bowie's fingerprints, creative fingerprints all over it. And I think I think that's absolutely true. I think he was a very restless individual. He was restless politically. He was restless artistically. Uh, I don't know if he ultimately was a happy man or not. I know that he keep, he kept having to kill and reinvent himself all through his life. All right. We're going to have to end it there. So, boy, what a great thing. Jim Chapterlane and David Edelstein having a conversation. All right. So uh, we'll end that there. Oh, we've got more to talk to you as we go along here today. Stay with us uh, as we revisit the life and work of David Bowie. Matt Damsker is a longtime arts and music writer, wrote for the Hartford Current, L.A. Times, Rolling Stone, and he was a go-to guy for us today, not only because uh, he's written a lot about David Bowie, but he's had some significant contact with David uh, Bowie. First of all, Matt, good to talk to you again. Hi, Colin. Nice speaking with you. So um, the song that you're going to kind of set up for us is Young Americans. Uh, everybody's heard this song. You heard the song in its delivery room, basically. You were yeah. there with the obstetrician. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, you know, Bowie was coming off huge success at the time of Ziggy Stardust and the Diamond Dogs Tour. And uh, Philadelphia was one of his real first breakthrough markets. Philly fans were were real devotees. And I was among them, but I was also at the time perhaps coincidentally, the rock critic for the Philadelphia Bulletin. And it was huge news when uh, we learned that David had embraced the Philly soul sound and was coming to Sigma Sound Studios, legendary place, to record an album. And uh, this came out of the blue, but I think it reflected the fact that Philadelphia was uh, culturally and musically 
a place that uh, related powerfully to him and that he surprisingly related to. He was suddenly immersing himself in this almost alien terrain, I think, for him of Philly's soul, and yet he made a tremendous connection with it. There were uh, musicians in that studio, Sigma Sound. Uh, Luther Vandross was one of the backup singers, Ava Cherry, tremendous vocalists. And what I noticed, because I had the opportunity to be in the studio to write a story about it, uh, for Rolling Stone and for the Philadelphia Bulletin, which which was my employer, I was struck by how turned on by the music and by Bowie's creativity, sort of on the fly creativity that he brought to it. It was an amazing moment, and uh, I felt I lost. I, I lacked objectivity because I was such a fan of Bowie. I, I was so struck. I felt he was the creative force, certainly in rock music, and uh, I think time has worn that out. Let's hear a little bit of that song, and then Matt and I are going to talk a bit more. But uh, here's Young Americans. We pulled him just behind the bridge He lays her down He frowns Gee, my life's a funny thing Am I still too young? He kissed the woman and there She took his ring Took his babies It took him minutes Took her nowhere Heaven knows he'd have taken in a ring All night She wants a young American So, Matt Damsker, I mean, uh, as a rock critic, you have to listen for, to other things. I mean, most of America was just kind of bobbing its head and weaving to this song, but it's there's more to it, right? Absolutely. I think this is a very important song in Bowie's, uh, uh, Bowie's oeuvre. I think that uh, uh, the song, uh, apart from the fact that it's an album opener, it's a track, it's a poppy, uh, up-tempo, pop-soul a confection on one one hand, and yet uh, listening to the lyrics, uh, the in it's they're fragmented in rather impressionistic way. They take on such topics as the disempowerment of women, uh, the racial divide. He addresses the fall of Richard Nixon in this song. Uh, he 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 talks about or he he implies uh, aspects of teenage suicide, and he kind of concludes with a failure of pop culture uh, to really capture people's humanity, which I think is probably truer now than it was then. And uh, as a song, it's a, it's a long kind of manifesto. I think Bowie was, uh, as I say, very fragmented perhaps in his emotion and thinking because he was going through a, a time when he was, I think, addled by fame. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's generally felt that he was addled by, by, by drug use to some degree. And his vocal cords were a little frozen. And yet it comes off as this sort of astonishing work of art. I, I've thought and written about Young Americans, the song, as well as the, rec- as the album. A uh, fair amount recently, just almost to myself. But mm. it's, it's a powerful song that I think is one of uh, his his top ten statements and works of prescient and powerful and deceptively serious and somber works of art. Well, Matt Damsker, we couldn't have gotten a better guy to talk about it. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Carl. Sad day. Thanks again. Okay. Bye bye. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to do, too, is just talk about how David Bowie affected people everywhere. I mean, in all kinds of places. Like, let's say you were a high school student in Webb City, Missouri. Is that where you were a high school student? 
That's exactly where I went okay. to high school. Okay, in Web City, Missouri, Susan Cable is joining us. She's a distinguished lecturer at the University of New Haven, an author, a biographer, a journalist, columnist. And not only were you a high school student at Web City, Missouri, but you were a Christian high school student at Web City, Missouri. So one might think that David Bowie probably wouldn't have much of a chance of connecting to you. But he at least connected to your best friend, for starters, right? He did. He connected to Debbie Duncey, my best friend, who just really identified with him. And for an uber-Christian sitting in the pews, he was just too weird. Mm. Um, I didn't dislike him. I didn't get him. And then I went off to college, and I was completely a fish out of water. And I realized that what he'd been doing was singing to the outcasts, and then then I got it. Yeah, that is so the case, that the way that he was doing all that gender bending, uh, all that stuff, it really was, part of that was a very powerful message. Like, if you don't think that you fit in, that's yeah. all right. There's this, I don't yeah. know, I don't even These know. These are your hymns. Right. These are your hymns. That's perfect. So the hymn that you picked is the live version of Under Pressure. This is what, this is a Freddie Mercury Memorial concert? Yeah, it was from the early 90s. And um, his, he's singing with Annie Lennox, and it's just my favorite. All right, we're going to play a little bit of it, and then you and I will kind of end our conversation uh, with a little bit of the music underneath us. So here we go, Under Pressure. So uh, you were the one who sent me to this uh, video today, Susan Campbell, and it's really marvelous. I actually, of, of everything that I looked at this morning, it may have affected me the most. And as is often the case with David Bowie, I don't really exactly know what's affecting me other than obviously that he's dead. But I mean, also there's, I, I think also Annie Lennox in the video is made up in a very unusual way. And once again, sending the message that you're talking about, I think, which is you think you're weird. Okay. Well, I'm weird too. That's okay. Yeah, that's okay. And they complement each other so well. I think what drew me to this, first of all, I love Annie Lennox as well, but that's his song. And it's been sung so many times, and he at no point sought to take the microphone from her. She really is kind of the lead singer on the, on the duo, in my mind, and he's fine. He's just absolutely fine. It's just an awesome song. Yeah. Now, she actually finds some notes in it that he doesn't usually put in it, and, and as, as Annie Lennox will, and, and makes it interesting. But that, that's very typical of him, right? Just tons of collaboration yeah. with everybody you can think of. Yeah, and, and I, I love that attitude. And if I'd written a song and performed a song like that, that would be my song. And I wouldn't really want, I mean, as much money <laughs> as may pour in, that, that's my song. But what a loss. Yeah, it is a loss. All right, Susan Kimball, thanks for sharing that memory with us. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. One of the things that's happened for me today, I, I mean, I'm not the Bowie scholar some of these people are, and so I've been either introduced or reintroduced to songs that I really never pay, paid any attention to or had forgotten about. Um, so joining us right now is uh, Rich Holland. He is design director at CoLab in Hartford. I asked him what the song was that he was thinking about today, and tell me which song you picked. I picked the Beaulieu Brothers. 
this one's an, an interesting st- song for me in that I don't think that it actually means anything. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> most of the times I, uh, I pick a song or I listen to music, it's because the text and, and the lyrical content speak so clearly. The lyrical content in this is tremendously fractured, and ultimately it reinforces something that has been thematic for me, that the surface message really has no meaning whatsoever, mm. that it's all about the subtext and about what's being evoked and not so much what's being said. How long have you and been a David Bowie fan? I've been a David Bowie fan since around 1970 or so. That's probably eight or nine that, Well, that's pretty old. much from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's the top of it. As a young African-American kid, I wouldn't necessarily be the case that David Bowie would uh, was aiming right at you, particularly at that time. Obviously, as he went on later on, he just started grabbing on the, the styles, the musical styles of African-American music. Tell me what spoke to you. Or is that an unimportant distinction I'm making? To me, it's an unimportant distinction. Yeah. Um, and again, it's all about context, right? So right. I was raised in Long Island. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wasn't uh, raised in a particularly African-American context. Yeah. In fact, my understanding of what it really meant to be African-American came to me a little later in life. So for me at the time, what I gravitated to was about things that spoke to things that I was experiencing, like angst and, and frustration. and Alienation, what me- like everybody else yeah. growing up in America. Well, yeah, <laughs> and what it means to, to love and not have that be requited. And that's what I gravitated through in the music that I listened to. All right, let's hear a little bit of Bule Brothers. And so the story goes, they wore the clothes, they said the things to make it seem improbable. The will of a lie like the hope it was. And the good men tomorrow had their feet in the wallow And their heads are brown with nicer shone And how they bought their positions with saccharine and trust And the world was asleep to our latent fuss Sang the swirl through the streets like the crust of the sun If you So I can sort of see why. Well, d- tell, tell me what you're hearing, Richard Holland. I'm hearing a tremendously complicated requiem. It's a kind of eulogy and an unapologetic one. It feels to me, and you know, there's no verification of this, right. but it feels to me that, uh, that he's talking to perhaps his brother, mm-hmm. um, someone deeply uh, connected to him, mm-hmm. and observing all the flaws and uh, all the things that, don't quite work right, mm. and uh, and still celebrating them. Yeah, definitely a song of loss and a lost time and a lost moment and a lost scene. Right, mm. he's singing about something he can't get back to. Right. Yeah. Well, Richard Holland, thank you so much for coming in and sharing this. This is so great. Right on. Thanks for having me, Colin. Okay. 
All right, so we're going to take a quick break here. This show is flying by. We'll come back with Rand Cooper, with Roger Catlin, with more of John Dankosky and Sean Lang as we wrap up this conversation about David Bowie. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. We want to say get well to our producer and friend, Josh Nalea, and congratulations to Greg Hill on his new baby, Betsy Kayone. Our intern is Amanda Gallagher. The part of Bill Curry was played by the Thin White Duke. For show pages, articles, and a video of the Here and Now staff singing All the Young Dudes, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, actress Ileana Douglas. And now, back to Colin. One of our regular contributors to the show is Rand Richards Cooper, the novelist, critic, uh, blogger for Commonweal, and lots of other things as well. So I uh, asked you earlier today, Rand, uh, what your David Bowie musical memories are. You've got more than one. One of them is really about a trifecta of songs. Some favorite songs are are really personal touchstones of memory uh, that, that bring back a specific moment in your past. And that trifecta of Bowie songs, which would be China Girl, Modern Love, and Let's Dance, all uh, were were uh, popular in the early '80s, specifically the summer of '83, and uh, I was out of college and and sort of uh, not sure what I was doing, and I spent uh, a summer with hanging out with dubious friends at a, a bar in New London, long defunct, called Maybreeze, <clears throat> down by Ocean Beach. And we spent a lot of that summer uh, drinking a lot and and dancing. Uh, especially to those three songs. And I remember thinking at the time, Bowie uh, seemed like a new, a new David Bowie. He, was, he had his hair, his hair was cut short. He was wearing that white linen jacket with the sleeves rolled up. He seemed more masculine uh, than he ever had in either of his prior, any of his prior iterations. And I thought, okay, well, you know, here's, here's a new Bowie. He's gotten his act together. Uh, he's neatened up and he's emerged as a new person. W- would I? And it was not at all clear <laughs> at that point that, that was happening. So that was the, so the summer of dancing to David Bowie. But just in purely musical uh, terms, my favorite is Bowie's 1976 cover of Wild is the Wind. Colin, you know at least part of the interesting pedigree of this song. It started out, the original was sung by Johnny Mathis. It was the theme song from the movie of that name, a George Cukor movie with Anthony Quinn and Anna Magnani. And Mathis's version was typical Johnny Mathis. The falsetto was there, but it was sort of schmaltzy. Um, seven years later, Nina Simone in 1964 did a cover of the song, and it's beautiful. She slowed it down, sort of lounge-style arrangement with a tinkling piano. And her baritone voice sounded interestingly androgynous, and I wonder if that's part of what the appeal of that song was for Bowie. Let's actually hear a little bit of this, and then we can, you can talk about it some more. Here's uh, David Bowie covering Wild is the Wind. All right, so 
what moves so, you? Just two things I'll, I'll note. One, melodically in places, this song, song strangely echoes the song I Will Drink Your Cup of Poison, the Gethsemane song that Jesus sings in Jesus Christ Superstar. Mm. To my ear, mm. that version, that sort of sacrificial desperation of that song haunts this one and fortifies it. But um, what I like about this song is Bowie sort of completed the process of untaming this song. It's Johnny Mathis beginning with a very tame puppy-like Nina Simone sort of decoupled from that. And Bowie takes it all the way and, and makes the song true to its name. There's a wild quality to this song. There's a desperate and mournful longing. And uh, he has a, his voice, which had great range, has a way of vaulting up to these um, uh, uh, falsetto peaks and then comes skidding down into the lower ranges. And so there's a sort of vocal arpeggio quality to the song that, um, that I loved. And it's a song about urgent and desperate desire and it ends if you get to the end of it in a kind of howling falsetto <laughs> and um, I, I was I was taken by this song and by the transformation of its roots that it represented and, and I still love listening to it and it's really one of my favorite songs ever. Alright. Rand Richards Cooper, that was perfect. Thank you so much. We've got so much more to come. We do. We're going to have to speed date through a lot of it. But John Dankowski back in studio uh, here. Um, one of the things we talked about early was David Bowie covering and David Bowie being covered. And, and of course, and that cover. And he mentioned the Nina Simone uh, cover of that that record, which is one of the most beautiful recordings she ever made. Um, uh, the Man Who Sold the World was on that Nirvana Unplugged record, that kind of last great statement from Kurt Cobain. And it's it's an amazing retelling of that song. And if you've ever seen any Wes Anderson movies, the thing that will make you understand Wes Anderson more than anything else is Sal George, the great Brazilian singer, singing David Bowie songs in Portuguese on the submarine for no particular reason. They're, they're actually beautiful covers in and of themselves. I also say Arcade Fire, a band that he championed late in his life and in his career, they did a beautiful cover in the, in, for years and years of heroes on, on stage. His covers are some of the, the best things ever, including, I will say, and I'll, to you, Sean, the very best thing that was ever recorded in American or British rock and roll was his version of White Light, White Heat, the Lou Reed song, BBC uh, recordings, early 1970s. If you haven't listened to this, it's tr- it defines glam rock right there. It's, it's my favorite thing. I'm going to take the rest of the afternoon off and just listen to David Bowie. <laughs> so, and you know, we haven't talked about maybe the most famous cover of uh, of all, uh, and that's Chris Hadfield, the um, Canadian astronaut uh, doing Space Oddity. Uh, Josh Dobbin, our occasional ombudsman, wrote, Look at this. Mankind collectively assembles all the technology and history to find itself in outer space from the first telescope to this moment with the accumulated millions of inventions and thousands of people's efforts. But once astronaut Chris Hadfield got there, how could he give it meaning in a way that made you feel everything all at once by singing a song that song there's value in dreaming and shared dreams it gives us things to reach for uh, it's a great example of sort of the use of art to give meaning to something that's happening uh, in real life uh, and uh, we have almost no time left but sean lang um one thing you said during the break was how many people were talking about either high school or some transitional moment in their life in their interviews yeah i mean john referenced high school susan referenced high school Rand referenced college you know, and for me, there were a couple of those bookends, so I had uh, changes from my freshman year. And then the year after I graduated, it was Young Americans, and I have a vivid memory driving around in my 69 VW Bug with my FF converter blaring Young Americans <laughs> and loving every moment of it. 
Um, I'm going to, as we uh, head towards the end of the show here, first of all, once again, thank everybody who cooperated. We just, I, I had to give up uh, Roger Kellen. I don't have any place to put him. Uh, and, uh, but thanks for everybody who did help out. And really, especially the staff here uh, just did uh, unbelievable wizardry here. Um, as we head towards the end, I'm just going to, I also got so many different uh, comments on Facebook today, people talking about road trips they took that wound up being kind of defined by the, the cassette tape they bought of Diamond Dogs <laughs> or something like that. So, um, and, but here's the one that kind of affects me and kind of maybe leads into um, what we're going to end with. Susanna McNeil wrote uh, that her song would be Ziggy Stardust. She said, I bought the cassette tape on a trip to the mall with my cousin Becky when we were 13. She died at 26. Mourn- I'm mourning two people today as I listen. My cousin Becky also died of cancer, as did David Bowie, breast cancer at 26. There is so much death in life, isn't there? It occurred to me that we spend more of our lives as incorporeal beings than we do embodied. Now, this is me talking. What we are always, of course, is stardust. Everything in us, uh, everything around us comes from the explosions of stars in massive distant galaxies. And that stardust is piped into us from the universe and is piped back out when we're done. The stuff that we're made of floats forever. For a little while, it joins a pattern called David Bowie or Susanna McNeil or John Dankosky or Sean Lang or me. Uh, So we better end with this song. Making love with his ego Ziggy is sucked up into his mind Like a leper messiah When the kids had killed the man I had to break up the band Oh,